You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Hey, everybody, and welcome to More to Be Said. This is a podcast from Kingsway Christian Church where we try to take topics that are relevant in everyday life, bring in some smart, wise experts, and dig in deeper for your benefit and to help coach you along. My name is Matt Nickerson. I'm the host for today's podcast, and I have with me today Greg Wooden. Greg is an addictions counselor. He works in the Fountain Square area, and he has been in this field since 1990. The name of his company is a four drug screening and education. And Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It is truly my pleasure. So Greg and I went to breakfast, I don't know, a couple months back and I was like, man, I've got to get you on a podcast. Can you help our listeners today know a little bit about who you are and what you do, Greg? Well, like you said, my name is Greg Wooden. I'm a licensed addictions counselor. I'm also a certified professional collector, which means uh, that's for the Department of Transportation collecting drug screens. And I'm in private practice since 2000 and no, since 2005, I've been in private practice by myself from 90 to 96. I worked at a mental health center in 97. I started my own business. And in 2005, I went by myself. Uh, Self-employed is the way to go, isn't it? Most of the time, (laughs) yes. All right. So when we were sitting at breakfast, Greg, there were a number of things you said to me that I thought, man, I want other people in the world to hear the wisdom that you have to share with us. So I thought, let's just jump in first by defining for us, what is addiction? What is it? You could probably come up with a hundred definitions of addiction. I'm going to share two with you. One is loss of control. A lot of people think that means when you drink or, or use drugs, you lose control of what you do, but that's not what we're talking about. Loss of control goes with any addiction. And it is when you start, can you limit what you're going to do. If you're just going to drink one beer or two beers and you end up drinking 30, that's mm-hmm. loss of control. Once you start, you can't control how much is going to happen. I'm just going to eat two Oreo cookies and you eat the whole sleeve. You know, addiction can be anything, but if, if you can't control the amount you do on a regular basis, and sometimes people overindulge or spend too much time on something, but we're talking about on a regular basis. Then you've got medical definitions and psychiatric definitions, but I like the definition. I think they all boil down to four words, and every addiction has the same four words. Use that causes problems. Mm. If what you do causes serious problems and you continue to do it and have those problems, that's addiction. Okay, so if I'm hearing what you're saying right there, Greg, uh, use that causes problems. When you start it, if it's causing problems and you can't stop, that's addiction. So it's not that... There isn't a problem. I'm thinking of the analogy of a drink for a second. You go out to dinner, you have too many, you don't realize you have too many, you get caught, somehow you get in trouble, and it's like, you know what, you never go back to it. That would not be an addiction. You made a mistake, you got caught in that mistake. But it's once you get caught, if you still go back and go back and go back and go back. Is that the point that it's an addiction? That, that is correct. And then notice the word problems is plural. Huh. I do believe a social drinker could get a DUI. I don't think a social drinker is ever going to get a second DUI. Ah. So if you come see me and it's their second or third DUI, I know we're talking about something more than social drinking. Okay. So for our listeners out there, and you're trying to discern, does my does my child, does my spouse, do I have a problem? We're looking for, if you're identifying negative consequences coming to related to what you're saying, and it's not stopping, maybe a sign you have an addiction. Right. That's exactly true. And you mentioned a number of them a minute ago. You mentioned uh, food, uh, obviously sex, drugs. Are there things that culture doesn't think of that can be addictions? Food? Yeah, I think I think we pick and choose what addictions are acceptable mm. because I, I do believe that everybody struggles with something. Um, I think that's just human nature. And, and even in, in Romans 7, Paul talks about struggling with doing what he doesn't want to do and he continues to do it. I think Paul in that, that chapter perfectly uh, illustrates what an addiction is and he had one. Yeah, yeah. 
even though we aren't hundred percent sure what it is. Right. Right, but, right. Well, no, that's the genius of it. Yeah. Because if he said, I'm addicted to, I'm addicted to eating too many olives, then <laughs> only those people could identify when he leaves it blank. Yeah. Anybody can, which is kind of the point of addiction because it doesn't really matter what it is if it's causing you problems. Okay. So then how can I know when I'm addicted? You mentioned addiction is loss of control. So at the point where I can no longer stop, right? If I can have a drink or two and go, ooh, my head is woozy, I should probably stop right now, but I don't. That might be a sign of an addiction, or is there another way to know? It could be, but it, 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 the trouble can be in many different areas. It could be in your social life or your medical life or your your um, your job, your family, uh, legal, all those things. And so when those when those problems happen, most people would say, well, I'm not going to do that again. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they stop or they don't do it to that level. But the addicts can't stop. So they just keep doing it and, and piling up those problems. So then uh, is there a connection between life stress and addiction? Sure. Uh, what would that connection be? Do you see anything? There's a connection between all emotions and addiction. And then if stress, we look at stress as an emotion. A lot of people early on in their lives didn't learn how to handle their emotions appropriately. And maybe they weren't taught. Maybe they were in a dysfunctional family where they didn't learn that. And then they get to be the age where those emotions are out of control and it starts causing them consequences because they're getting angry and punching holes in the wall at school or, or hitting somebody or they're going to the casino too much at 21 and they just spent their whole paycheck. So now it's becoming more and more evident because the problems are uh, piling up. They, whoever the person that might be struggling with addiction, never learned at a young age to handle their emotion. Did I hear you correctly? Uh, Yes, but that's not everybody. That's just one path. Right. So, okay. So in that case, let's just pause on there for a second and we'll talk about some of the other ones in a minute. So in that situation, how could you coach maybe parents who are listening in whose kids are dealing with stresses and emotions? We live, in my opinion, I was a youth pastor for 10 years. What we're dealing with today is significantly harder than what I was dealing with when I was a youth pastor. And that was significantly harder than when I was a teenager myself, which was the previous 10 years. So if you're going in decades, like it seems like with each passing decade, the challenges for teenagers is getting increasingly more complex. Part of it's social media, cell phone. Everybody's constantly living all of their life on a social stage today and the pressures and the confusion in the world today. So how do I, as a parent, if this would be a situation, how do I help my kids unpack their emotions? Do you know, does that make sense what I'm asking? Yeah, I think with that, you would probably need to talk to a child uh, therapist or child psychologist better. But what the thing is that they need to do is not remove the consequences from Mm -hmm. them. Because every time I remove a consequence, I enable. And so if they, you know, natural consequences, are the best if you continually forget to take your homework and you, you go to school and the parent takes the homework every you know three times a week sometimes it just needs to be you know what sorry your homework's sitting here and you're gonna have to deal with the consequences and I know that's hard when the person the kids are nine years old but they have to learn that because if we just jump in and re- rescue from those consequences they don't learn anything and I see that in 20 year olds and 30 year olds parents calling me about their 20 year old and he's got to do this for probation well you know he's got to do this for probation if he doesn't want to do it we can't make him ah so you do see a pattern of a of a parent who continues to take the load off the responsibility off their child even playing into adulthood where the parents still so desperately want them to be healthy or clean or free or whatever it is that they are now taking the burden for them absolutely now again that's one 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 example i get it yeah 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 we'd be very careful with this that this isn't one size fits all right many ways that this happens so that in that regard how does the parent because i told a story in my interview with justin how does the parent then put that weight back on them while also coming alongside them. Any 
thoughts or suggestions. Well, I think that's the way God designs us, have parents to help you through that when you're a teenager. And there are a lot of kids out there that just don't have that because the parent is addicted themselves. Mm. The parent's a workaholic. The parent doesn't, you know, maybe they're they're off doing something else. Maybe they travel all the time. And, and again, social media, they let their kids play on the phone all the time and talk to their friends on social media. So there's nobody there. So they're going to start seeking out help from people that they know. And maybe someone tried marijuana and said, hey, you know, this helped me deal with stress or this helped me deal with my depression or my anger or whatever the emotion is, anxiety. And so when they first learn that at 14 or 15 years old, then they've picked up a pattern that, hey, I can cover up that negative feeling with this kid chemical. Mm. And that's a very strong and powerful way to do that. And it's very quick. Yeah. And you'll find in working with addicts, many of them are impatient because they are used to the quick, you know, you drink, it just takes a half hour to feel it. Or if you're, you're using cocaine, it's just a matter of seconds. So that solves that problem. The problem is when you're doing it at 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, you're not developing the skills you need to deal with them besides using. And that's all you know at 40. What you just said is full of so much power and wisdom. So backtracking through the story, I have a negative emotion. I don't know how to deal with the emotion. So I try perhaps marijuana or which is often a gateway drug, something heavy, but I try maybe something heavier. That drug, that's just using a drug as an analogy, because this would work for many of the things. Could be, again, it could be exercise, could be food, could be any number of things. But that drug then makes me feel better, which then gives me the belief I'm actually handling this. It gives me a false sense of superiority or elation because, you know, cocaine and it releases all these chemicals in your brain, right? And then I feel better about the situation myself, but then that implants, oh, the way I handle this problem right. is through this. So then the way many of these drugs work is my brain starts to get numb to the, the amount. So if it was, you know, one puff <laughs> that it takes a whole, uh, it, I don't know, whatever it is, you know, I'm trying to think of an analogy, but then it's not just one, it's not just two, it's not just three, it's not, then it gets more and more and more. Right. Now I'm going to do a full-blown addiction. Right. Is that kind of the path? That yes. We're- and everybody that's addicted to anything is addicted to the same thing. And that what you just said, the same thing is a four letter word called more. Mm. I need more of it. I need a stronger version of it. I need it more often. I need something different that works better. So if you're addicted, you're addicted to more. That's a powerful statement right there. So if I'm listening to this and I'm identifying myself, my child, my spouse, I'm increasing, I'm seeing more occur. How do I get control of it before it gets out of control? That is not the easiest thing in the world to do because especially from a Christian standpoint, enabling a lot of times looks very godlike or I'm trying to help you with this and I'm trying to keep you from having your electricity turned off or whatever. So sometimes you just have to stop. There's a book I read just in that the entire title of it was Don't Help. Wow. And what it means by that is don't help them with their addiction. Let them uh, suffer the consequences. Nobody quits until the consequences of their behavior outweighs the benefits. Mm. And as long as you keep rescuing them from the consequence, the benefits are going to be there. But if they have the consequences, then that's going to tilt the scale in the favor of consequences. And the benefits are going to say, well, this isn't worth it anymore. I need to stop. Years ago, a mentor of mine said to me, it's pretty close to a direct quote, but Matt, none of us change until the pain of changing becomes less. No, sorry. Yes, less than the pain of staying the way I am. Right. And then that that kind of moves us emotionally to, I don't want to live like this anymore. It's what some describe as rock bottom, right? Right. So what is rock bottom? Is it just the moment where pain is so great, I don't want to do it anymore? That's probably it. I think everybody's rock bottom is different. I mean, we've got people that had million dollar businesses and they're homeless now and they're still using. So you would think that would have been rock bottom, but it's not for them. Mm. Rock bottom just comes the realization that I can't do this anymore and I'm not, I can't do it on my own and I need help. Mm. And that's where the 12 step program comes in. That's where the 
the recovery programs come in, counselors, Christian uh, churches, and, and places like that. Wow. So, uh, the book I read years ago, I highly recommend, it was dealing with poverty, but the wisdom in it is for everything. But it was talking about, it's, it's called When Helping Hurts. Right. And that there comes a point where I think I'm really doing good, but I'm actually doing more damage than mm-hmm. good by just trying to solve the problem for them. Right. Yeah. I read a book on um, missions on that. As a lot of times Americans will come into a poor country and, and build these huts or build these whatever and then leave. And they notice when they go back in 10 years, it, it's not working anymore. Yeah. So they found that if they go in and go s- beside them and build yeah. it with them, they take ownership right. and have more pride in it and they take care of it. And it's the same way with addiction. So powerful. Okay. Some more questions I have. You said uh, there's a connection between all emotions and addictions. Okay. So right now, I, we're living in one of the most chaotic seasons that uh, has happened probably in the last, I don't know what it is, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, whatever it is. Obviously, that's not true for everybody. Some people have had very chaotic seasons. But on a whole, on a global scale, this pandemic, uh, the shutdown of culture, the, you know, the division in America we see between the left and the right, all these things, it's a very chaotic season. It's very complex situations we're dealing with, it seems like, everywhere. So that being said, people's emotions are out of control. Are you seeing a lot of people turning devices in over the last couple of years, especially? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think a lot of us sounded this warning when the quarantine stopped. People weren't paying attention. The quarantine started. I mean, people weren't paying attention. We had, as, as substance abuse counselors, we set up people with relapse prevention plans and you're going to do this and this. And they, they give us, you know, like go to the gym or go to church or go to an AA or an NA meeting and you get it all set up and this is working great. None of us had planned for a pandemic where all those things were closed. They pulled the supports out from everybody, and we didn't do a good job preparing them for that because we didn't have... It started next week. <laughs> right, right. So uh, I just saw in uh, the study last year, 2020, we had more overdose deaths than we've ever had in the history of the country. Wow. Do you remember that? Like, like it was compare- over 100,000. It was the first time it had crashed 100,000 drug overdose deaths. Wow. How, give me a ballpark. Do you know what it would have been in any of the years prior? Like, just to mm. give an idea. Uh, that's not something I have okay. handy. Yeah, I just yeah. know that it was a record. And I, and I know it was a significant increase just from what I've seen in, in what I do. Wow. So, okay. So, related to that, then, how can I, uh, let me back up and say it this way. Justin uh, White, who we, we had at our church to speak and also did in one of these podcasts, Justin White said, you know, the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. So, how can I, if I'm noticing, again, my spouse, myself, my child, my family member, if I'm noticing this increased withdrawal or whatever it is, or they're starting to use this thing more often, how do I help create connection? Is there anything I can do besides sit back and watch their lives fall apart? The connection, that, that is very true what he said. I don't know that I would call it the opposite of recovery, but it is definitely a, a huge, huge factor in recovery is connections. You just help them connect. I like to ask clients what they like to do. They like to play basketball. They like to sew. They like to whatever. And then we try to get them connected into those areas where they can be with other people and, and get those connections. And the studies do say that the people that are more lonely or more loners that don't have as many connections are more likely to become, become addicted. Okay, but so the thing is that addiction itself breaks your connections. You don't want to be around somebody that's drunk all the time, so they lose friends. You don't want to be around somebody around that is snorting cocaine or their hygiene's gone down or they don't have a job anymore and they're asking you for money all the time. So it's self-perpetuating. So then it becomes a, almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yep. See, I, I knew nobody liked me, so I go back to my substance. But the more I use my substance, the more people don't want to be around me, but only be fulfills. It's a vicious cycle. Wow. How subtle is it? Do most people not realize they're on this path or they're aware of it and they just don't know what else to do so they keep going? Denial is a strong thing. What they do a lot of times is compare themselves to other addicts. Well, I'm not as bad as her. I'm not as bad as him. So they keep going. 
You told me an illustration of that about bars and the way that uh, people who are alcoholics process pulling into a bar. You remember that illustration? Yeah, yeah. I think you're talking about um, they think that that's normal. Correct. Yes. Yeah. I had a client with five DUIs and I said, are you an alcoholic? He said, no, I'm a social drinker. I said, do you think most social drinkers have five DUIs? He said, yeah, all my friends have a lot of DUIs. So who does he surround himself with but people that drink like he does? So that feeds into denial because now what he's doing looks normal to him. Yeah. I had another client tell me in an alcohol and education class, he told the whole class about 40 people. He said, I know for a fact more people use cocaine in the United States than use alcohol. And that he truly believed that because where does he hang out? At the crack house. It was cocaine users. Ah. And he gets this false sense of what's real. And so it feels normal to him. He, he gets this tunnel vision doesn't see all the people that aren't. He, Every pot smoker thinks everybody smokes pot. That was my experience. Having lived in Colorado, uh, it, uh, marijuana was not legal till right after I left. I think it was the same year I came here. It became legal out there. But lots of people were, lots of people were doing it illegally, which is why it became legal there. But yeah, they were all rationalizing. Well, everybody's doing it. They've all got this laundry list of, well, it's, it's, you know, it's better for you than smoking. It's better than this. It's better than that. It's better than that. All these things. Like, yeah, but look how much money you're spending. Look how your marriage is falling apart. Look at how you're you're not performing right. at work. But he could not get their attention. Which brings up a good question. How do you get people's attention? Well, it depends on the addiction. Substance abuse usually gets people's attention because they get in legal trouble. Okay. So they were stealing. They have a DUI or they had a breaking and entering charge or they were stealing money from their employer. I mean, they're pretty bold. I have clients that will steal a check from their employer's office and write it to themselves and forge your employer's name, knowing three days later, the employer or their, their bank accounters, they're going to notice and they're going to know who it was. So, cause it was written to them, but <laughs> not, not real hard to put one on one together. There, no, huh? but you know what? They don't care because the immediacy of, I need this meth, I need this cocaine, I need this heroin now is more important than three days later, I'll deal with the consequences. Wow. So you can see the pattern there is I don't think ahead. I think of the now and which I said the addicts aren't necessarily patient people because they're used to that immediate fix. Yeah. So powerful what you're saying right now. You had mentioned, you used the illustration about the bars. You said at some point you talked to one person who said they rationalize, well, they have all these parking spaces outside of bars for a reason. Oh, yeah. If, they, if drinking and driving is illegal, why are there parking lots at bars? Yeah. See, there, there's a lot of things that people say to me, and I don't even have to ask about their alcohol drug abuse. I can tell they're an addict just by the things they say. Yeah. Something like that. The, a social drinker wouldn't do that. A social drinker knows why there are parking lot spots at bars because sometimes they're the designated driver. Sometimes they go and have a beer, watch the game, and two, four hours later, they go home. And they go home and so they know why you can park in a parking lot and not leave drunk an alcoholic doesn't understand going to the bar and not getting drunk mm. so why would there need to be a parking lot if that's illegal it's very incorrect thinking it's it's what we call a thinking error but that is what they do so do you have any idea like percentages like what percentage of culture are alcoholics what percentage of culture culture are drug addicts what percentage of culture are addicted to porn do we do we know any of those it is i think in the united states the statistics are about 10 percent of the adult population is alcoholic okay or, or an addict but most of them are alcoholics and then there's a few more percent that are addicts the other drugs they get the attention but they're not as big as alcohol okay they make the headlines in the newspaper and the headlines on the tv but alcohol is much much more prevalent problem and actually kills more people than any of the other drugs. Mm -hmm. Well, ex with the exception of nicotine. Okay. Because no, of lung cancer. Or right. Nicotine okay. is the, the biggest killer. But you know what the second biggest killer is? 475,000 people, Americans die a year from nicotine. And the second one surprises a lot of people. This is 300,000. Sugar. 
Well, I guess that shouldn't surprise me. <laughs> Sugar's a deadly drug from, from diabetes and obesity, and it's a stimulant, heart disease, and, and all the stuff that goes along with that. Then alcohol's third at 100,000, give or take. And then fourth is opioids. And that's 50,000. And it's quickly increasing, is my understanding. It is, but it's still only 50,000. Look at the other three. How much attention do we pay to the other three? We ignore those and concentrate on opioids. I think as a society, we kind of help those people that are addicted to alcohol and, and, and nicotine and sugar because they don't have a problem. Look at, look at these opiate addicts. Let's say that, because part of what you do, if I'm not mistaken, right, is um, if I do end up in a situation where something happened and I've lost my job or I, my job is in question, what would happen? next, right? Like they would come to you and what would be the next steps there? Well, what I do now mostly is employee assistance things. So I'm I'm fed this by employee assistance programs that the person is at risk of their job. Okay. So that I do, I do a fair amount of court ordered stuff, but the vast majority of what I do is employee. Okay. So then how would I, or how would you help a person rebuild the lost trust between myself and my employer? A lot of times with these employee assistants, you only get so many sessions. So it's, it's kind of hard to do, but we start with uh, some education and let them know that this is what addiction is I never ever tell someone I shouldn't say never I almost never tell someone you're an addict or you're an alcoholic I don't think that's effective I would rather describe what one is and what one does and let them make the connection themselves ah. so we start with some education and then if that's something they decide they want to do then we can uh, pursue that and and start building their life back one of the big things you have to do is assess them for detox because some drugs are are uh, deadly to detox from. So you don't you want to get them medical assistance for those things. Can you give me an example? The three drugs that are deadly to withdraw from are alcohol. When you say deadly. You can die from the withdrawals, from not having. So if you're a heavy alcoholic, you, you are depending on it multiple times a day or multiple times a week. Right. Just stopping it, you can you can die? Yes, that's true. How does that, how does that work in the body? Do you understand the science behind that? Yeah, what happens is you're, you got these, these chemicals in your brain that alcohol is... Alcohol is a depressant. Every, every drug works differently, but alcohol is a depressant. So you've got these chemicals in your brain, serotonin, adrenaline, noradrenaline. I call them feel-goods. So you have these feel-goods in your brain, and then you take alcohol, and you're canceling out some of the feel-goods because it's a depressant. So you've got these feel-good chemicals, and alcohol cancels them out. So your body wants to maintain so what's called homeostasis, which is a, a balance in, in your uh, body chemistry. So your body starts increasing these feel-good chemicals to take care of the alcohol that's canceling out the other ones. So the more you you drink, the more of these feel-good chemicals, serotonin and those things that your body's making. Then you pull alcohol out, you've got too many feel-goods. You've got all these stimulants in your brain that are natural, but your body is not ready for those because there's no alcohol canceling those out. So your heart races, you might have seizures, you might have heart attack, stroke. What would be the process? You know, let's say caffeine, for example. Um, recently, I felt convicted by God. Hey, you're getting to the point where you're drinking two, three, four, five caffeinated beverages a day. And a lot of it was stress triggered for me. It really was. I think it really honestly was becoming an addiction. This is like a month ago where like I would start to feel kind of that down moment or tired or man, I got an appointment meeting to go to and I want to bring my best. So I go get a coffee and then uh, I wouldn't feel my best, but I'd go home. I feel jittery, I feel anxious. So I decided, you know, what? I'm going to quit. I'm going to go cold turkey. And I had the, the pounding headaches for, you know, a few days, that kind of thing. And now I have go either no caffeine or half calf a day is kind of where I'm at. I went from like four or five a day down to like one, down to like a half. Now I can go none or whatever, but I kind of tapered it down like that kind of thing. So is that like, what would an alcoholic do if they were 
would they need to taper it down? Would they go cold turkey? Would you go cold turkey with assistance? Like most of them, just drink again. They start feeling those symptoms, and then the alcohol will cure it because they're canceling out those those. But if you want to get sober, then what we suggest is you go to a, a treatment ER. Facility. Yeah, uh, your family doctor can do it. These these things can be done inpatient or outpatient. You can do outpatient alcohol detox. They usually use Librium as a as a is that common a medicine or pill. Yeah, that's okay. a benzodiazepine that will slowly that is slowly taper them off. So you put those chemicals in that's not alcohol and it, it balances the brain chemistry and you just pull those back and, and detox from alcohol happens within probably a week. Okay. It's not a long detox. Okay. Okay. But is that, what's a normal time? So like, I don't know, you mentioned there were two or three that are, that are deadly. Alcohol is There's one of them. Three. Alcohol, three. benzodiazepines are the other. Benzodiazepines are commonly used for anxiety, sometimes okay. sleep, Xanax, Valium, okay. Ativan, okay. those okay. kind of things. And then barbiturates, which aren't very commonly used anymore because they were very dangerous to use. Okay. So basically I need to get connected with the medical doctor. I need to not try to self-evaluate. I'm thinking about our listeners right now who might be going, you know, the logic, the denial. Oh, well, I, I can't stop because I might die. I better keep going. Like, just reach out to your doctor, be honest about your situation and get some help if that were your story. Right. And it's, it's a pretty simple process if you go with it medically. Like I said, it, you'd, you'd probably be done in, in a week or less. Okay. So it's not a terribly painful withdrawals. Not, well, it is painful if you're not getting medical ah. seizures, hallucinations, DTs, shakes, sweats, those kind of things. And your heart's racing. Again, it could be a heart attack. I don't know what DTs are. Delirium tremens. Okay. Those are alcohol withdrawals. So okay. Kind of okay. just shakes. A lot of people will get up in the morning and already have alcohol withdrawals from the night before because they've gone eight, 12 hours without drinking in their handshake. Ah. So they start with that first beer at eight o'clock in the morning. So that could be a shaking. sign. Yeah, that would definitely this be a is, sign. This is definitely getting serious. Okay, so you, you mentioned earlier denial is a powerful thing. It's the first step in 12 steps. And that what you do when you meet with people is you you just kind of read them. Here's what an addict is. And then you hope, hope they self-identify. I kind of describe it. And then we look at their life and say, is there anything here that looks familiar to you? Or does this, have this happened to you? And then they might say yes or no. or And still, the denial can be there, but it's just chipping away at it. They didn't become an addict overnight. They're not going to become in recovery overnight either. Rome wasn't built in a day. Right. You're not going to unbuild it in a day. Right. right. And that's not a discount. God can take anything away he wants. He can take right. away cancer or addiction. And sometimes that happens. Yeah. Sometimes he wants us to use the path that he provided for his other ways. Coming back to where we started in this line of conversation, does a person restore or rebuild their reputation? Obviously they have to get clean. That's part of it. You can't trust me again if I'm still using. What can I do? Are there any things that I could put back into my life that you've seen or stories you could tell us that would help us wrap our head around it? Start being honest and keep being honest. I had a client one time that came into an intensive outpatient group. He was a cocaine addict. He was in his mid-20s and still lived with his parents. And he came into group one night just absolutely furious because his mom had lost $200 and she accused him of taking it. And I said, whoa, 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 you're clean from cocaine for two weeks. If $200 comes up missing in my house, the first person I'm looking at is you because you've stole her VCR. You've stole her this. You've stole my her before. You trained her to do that. And someone's recovery should understand that because this is what I've this is what I programmed them to do. He came in the next session and he said, you know what, my mom found the money. I didn't steal it. And I said, well, still she was justified to ask you or to, to blame you because you've done it so many times. So again, patience is the problem because addicts are used to immediate fixes. So we have to deal with them. You know, it's going to take a while. You didn't lose this trust overnight. You didn't become undependable overnight. So it's going to take months, maybe years to earn that back and it's baby steps. 
you know, when I'm working with couples where one of them has messed up royally, and it could be any number of issues, how they messed up, but they're trying to fix it. What you just said is so powerful because when they when the questions come, the accusations come. Let's use uh, an adultery as a thing, you mm-hmm. know, and, and the spouse says, why were you home 10 minutes late? Well, I got stuck in traffic. Well, how can I know that's why? Right. You know, that kind of thing. Absolutely. And I often tell them, stay humble. You know, as a biblical phrase, stay humble. You know what? I'm so sorry that I've created a scenario where it's hard for you to trust me. I know that I've earned that. But all I could tell you is I literally was stuck in traffic and I was 10 minutes late. I don't, there's, I can't erase the past. You have every right to question me. I'll answer any question you want. You can go to work and interview anybody you want. I'm so sorry that I did this to you. And the the addict has to understand that that, that's their responsibility. That's the the scenario. They created the situation, so they're going to have to be the one to suffer the consequences until they can create a new situation. Is there any path that, uh, as, again, somebody who's trying to repair a broken relationship, is there any path that they can take as to earn back trust? Besides being honest, is there any other things they can do? I don't know any quick fixes to that. I think that's, that's what it is, is trust in time. You mentioned earlier enabling. So w- what is an enabler? Do you have a definition for that? I love this definition of codependency. It's a little, it's a, you have to think about it. A codependent is someone who is dependent on someone who's depending on dependent on something that's undependable. Wow, that's really good. Say that one more time for us. A codependent is someone who's dependent on someone who is depending on something that's undependable. Okay, so if I recognize my spouse, and my wife doesn't, but my spouse has an addiction to, say, alcohol, they're depending on the alcohol, and if I'm depending on her, I am now codependent. Right. Is that what you're saying? You're depending, I need them, and they need it. Yeah, and you need to rescue her. You need to be there to step in and, oh. and help her. You make excuses to the kids. Mom, Mom's sick again, and she's not sick. She's hungover, so the kids have to walk around on eggshells. So you're propping her up, and actually you're dependent on her. And I... There's an old movie in the mid-90s called When a Man Loves a Woman, yeah. Andy Garcia and Meg yep. Ryan. Whoever did the consulting on that movie was was excellent because if you watch the movie, she's the alcoholic and he's dependent on her to rescue her, to take care of the kids. And when she gets sober, he's lost. The uh, his identity was, the, I'm going to be yeah. the savior. The I'm going to be Jesus to this And he, she doesn't need that anymore. And now he was addicted to being needed by her because she was so needy. It, it destroyed their marriage. It's a great movie to watch. I'm going to have to go back and watch. I don't think I've ever watched the movie, but I do know the movie. The other thing uh, in that movie that was really good is the oldest daughter. She's like nine, and then she has a little sister, maybe four. The oldest daughter becomes the surrogate parent at nine because this uh, Andy Garcia's character is a pilot, so he's gone a lot. So mom's mom is drunk or passed out or she didn't come home. We don't know where she is. So this older daughter, she's fixing breakfast for her four-year-old. She's cooking eggs. She's doing her laundry. She's fixing her hair so she can go to school because mom's not able to do it. And there's an interesting scene in there where the oldest daughter comes home and talks to her mom and she said, there's a birthday party at school. Everybody in the class was invited but me. Mm. And so you wonder why, you know, why wouldn't they invite her? She's probably bossy. She's mm. used to being in charge. So her relationships are going to be messed up because she's a nine-year-old who's acting like a 20-year-old. Uh, the, the consultant on that movie was excellent. <laughs> you keep coming I mean, back to that. <laughs> that if, if you watch that movie, you'll, you'll understand a lot more about that whole process. I, I'm actually going to go back and watch that now. Okay, so that leads me to wondering, you, you use the idea, codependent enabler, are they the same thing? Are they, they go They're pretty much interchangeable. Codependency okay. is the action enabler is usually the person that does it, but they use those interchangeably. Okay. And there's a great book on that called Codependent No More I Met by Melody Beatty. It's pretty much a standard in the industry. It's probably 30 years old or more now, but it's you can still find it on Amazon or a lot of times even in self-help areas of, okay. of bookstores. Codependent No More by? Melody Beatty. Melody 
Melody Beatty. B-E-A-T-T-I-E, I think. Okay, Beatty. Okay. And it's excellent. Uh, if, you, if you're if you a codependent, that's the best book in the world to, to read, I think. Uh, years ago, I read a story in a book. Uh, I believe the book was The Emotionally Healthy Church by Pete Scazzaro. But he referenced a rabbi who used to tell an illustration. Uh, there's a man walking across the bridge, and there's another man on the bridge, and the man's got a rope. And uh, he says to the man, can you hold this rope? Right. And he holds the rope, and then the guy jumps off the bridge. And now the guy's hanging off the bridge. And he says to him, I need you to hold on to the rope. And he says, well, I, climb up. I can't hold on much longer. I need you to climb up. And he says, no, no, no I'm not going to climb up. Just hold on to the rope. And he's like, well, I'm not strong enough to pull you up. I can't do this. And he says, no, no, I know, I know, but I need you to hang on to the rope. I need you not to let go of me. And back and forth and back and forth right. it goes. Till finally, the man on the bridge says, I can hold the rope no more. If you will not come up the rope, I am going to let go. And you know, man on the other side says, you can't do that. It'll, you'll kill me. You can't let go. And finally, the man chooses, I'm going to let go. And it's a terrible, terrible story. But the whole point is, I think it's pretty clear, but the whole point is we do this with loved ones all the time because we the person says to us, I can't stop. You know, but again, this is the enabling, but this isn't my job to hold on to this. And if you don't want to climb back up the rope, it's not my job to right. hold on to the rope for right. you. But that is so hard. How do we emotionally get ourselves over that? If I let go, you might die. If I let go, your life might get worse. If I And the impact on my kids, the impact on my family, the impact, how do I come to embrace that? I think the, the codependent and the enabler is as much needed counseling as the addict. So I think that helps them. That book, Codependent and More, I think it's chapter four on detachment. Just read that chapter. If that's all you're going to read, read it. I think it's chapter four. It's called Detachment. And it talks about how to do that. How to separate myself emotionally from this other person who I love and care about deeply. Right. Wow. Okay. So let me keep going with just a few more questions here today. How long does it typically take for a person to rebuild? Is it different in every situation? It is. Every drug has its own set of problems. Um, like for cocaine or the or amphetamines, methamphetamines, it could take two years to even get to what we call stable. It's a long process. But in those two years, you can start putting yourself back together and, and getting things in order. I think everybody's going to be the situation they're in. Some people, part of getting themselves back together is going back and finishing their high school diploma or getting a GED before they can really get a job they need to. So how long it takes as individual as far as the, the process of putting your life back together is based on the person and what's going on. The drug itself, the longest ones are the stimulants. And what would be a stimulant? I don't, what counts Cocaine, as amphetamines, Okay. Methamphetamines, caffeine, sugar. <laughs> sure, I had to go there, Greg. Yeah, I'm just kidding. I know. I know. <laughs> Preaching the choir. I'm, just, I'm talking to myself. <laughs> by God's grace, uh, I've gone off caffeine many times, and unfortunately, by my flesh, I tend to go back again. But it's still a good reminder to me always, like, I don't need this to survive. I'm actually, I, it was funny, by day three, I was like, I don't need this. Why was I thinking I need this? What goes to my brain is, I need, I need this. I need right, this. But right. I don't need it. Like, I'm doing fine. I got a little headache. I deal with it. I move on. And then it was those were gone after just a few days. Yeah, those withdrawals aren't bad. But think no. of think of cocaine as a little bitty tiny C, and think of co- I mean think of caffeine as a little bitty tiny C, and think of cocaine as a big one. It's that much more pronounced. It's it's they're they're similar in the way it happens, but it's uh, the amount of time the the ten, the uh, intensity is is a world apart. It's difficult. So as a Christian, which I am, all of our listeners may not be, but as a Christian in our community, how can we come alongside somebody who has an addiction? What approach? What perspective should we have? Any thoughts for us? Are you talking? about individuals or churches or yeah let's say uh, as a church as a church body i think if a church kind of started some kind of recovery ministry whether it's celebrate recovery or or 
opposed to Narcotics Anonymous meeting or something like that. I think the church also needs to be accepting and, and, and realizing all sins are the same. I mean, a cocaine addict is no different than the, the caffeine addict. We're all, we're all sinners saved by grace. And I think we need to portray that, hey, this is an acceptable place where you can come and, and know that whatever is wrong with you, we're all in the same boat. Yeah. We're all desperately in need of a savior. Every one of us is absolutely crazy <laughs> in some way. That's almost you know? like you know me, Greg. <laughs> well, I know myself too. We're, we're, we're all a mess. That's, that's why we need to yeah. get help, and that's what, that's what Jesus came for. Do you have a program out there that you recommend more than another? I do like Celebrate Recovery. It's uh, church-based, but AA and NA, those are, those are really good programs, too. They've, they've helped more people than all the rest of them combined. I don't think it's for everybody, but it helps a lot of people. So if I'm not mistaken, you correct me where I'm wrong here, uh, Celebrate Recovery was created by some Christians, I think it's Saddleback, Saddleback yeah, yeah. in California, in California. and they were looking at AA, and they were seeing kind of this AA shifting away from God, more of the, what we would call the Christian God, to just a generic higher power and went, you know what, we think there's a need for a Christian-based recovery group. They created AA, which is really eight steps. They took the 12 steps and summarized them down to eight steps, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's right. Do you know any local churches that do it or how people even find out about it? Plainfield Christian does have a celebrate recovery. I think it's think it's on friday night but don't quote me on that and okay that, and that could have changed with the pandemic too i don't know okay but you can go to the celebrate recovery website just google celebrate recovery and it'll show you the schedule and where those meetings are and celebrate recovery is in some ways i like it better because everybody goes to it food addicts are there and sex addicts are there and so they have like a an open i think they have a meal with every session and then they open with a general session and then you break up into groups based on your particular situation Awesome. I also heard, and again, any listener who decides to look into this, if this is your thing and you find out I'm wrong, let me know. But I think the Blended Church here on the west side of Indianapolis has a Celebrate Recovery specifically targeting uh, sex addiction and porn addiction. And so that may be something to look into too for our listeners. Yeah, and that's a huge one that you don't don't think about. I saw a statistic once that one third, fully one third of all time spent on the internet worldwide is watching porn. Wow. So there's a whole lot of people out there that deal with that that you don't have you don't recognize because it's a hidden one, it's a quiet one. It's one you're not doing at a bar, you're not doing out well, so I guess some people do it everywhere, but it's, it's a hidden one we don't think about. You know, I, I think I may have some of my statistics wrong, but I think a study came out that showed the chemical release in the brain related to porn addiction is a thousand times stronger than that of cocaine, of what's released in the chemical. So it's just the euphoric feeling you get is just is stronger. The, so the yeah, addiction that, is that, just that probably is true, especially after you use cocaine for a while. The first use of cocaine, the first use of any of those really strong ones is, is pretty powerful, but you develop a, a tolerance to it. But porn is a huge one in our society. Yeah. I think Dr., if I'm saying this correctly, Dr. Patrick Carnes is kind of the guy 20, 30 years ago who had to work really hard to get people to even pay attention because it was just such an accepted thing. Like, hey, it's out there. It's not a big deal. It's not a real thing. And he went out and said, wait, this is ruining people's lives. Like, let's pay attention to this. And so he wrote a couple books. I think one was called Out of the Shadows. Pretty good book, just trying to get people's attention to the issues. If you're out there and you're like, ah, where should I go for this one? To take a look. Out of the Shadows yeah. Dr. Patrick Carnes. It's pretty good. Do you have any other resources or books you recommend for people? Every Man's Battle is another good one. Okay, by Steve Arterburn. Yeah, and then Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous has their own big book like AA does. Okay. 
I think it's just called Sex Addicts Anonymous. I think is the name of it. <laughs> a real hidden you title. Can, you can buy that on the internet, I'm sure. Basically, the principles are all the same. And even with uh, Celebrate Recovery, the principles are the same. Which is why it doesn't matter what your addiction is. You could show up and have your needs met, so right. to speak. Yeah. Right. Thank you so much, Greg, for your sure. time today. I really appreciate it. Hopefully, our listeners out there were blessed, encouraged, challenged, got some points of resources. We'd love to serve you. You can learn more about us at kingswaychurch.org. And we hope to see you next time on More to Be Said.